difficult, difficult topic this morning. I pray, God, you would help us to understand why you taught your disciples and others about this, this, this act, this posture. And I pray, God, that we would see it in our own lives today and that we would avoid it. We would, we would protect ourselves from it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. We seem to be in the middle of a couple of reading weeks. A lot of people are sick, so thank you for joining us for making the brave uh, trek to Uptown Waterloo. We are continuing on a series that we started off uh, a few weeks ago called Mystical. And the idea behind the series was simple. We wanted to, as much as possible, remind ourselves that who we are and what we are is supernatural. Christianity has been seen as a bunch of rules, a bunch of behaviors that you should do in order to be good. But the problem is, when we look at that that way, we forget that it's not really what God intended. What God intended was to place his spirit in us to transform us. Last week, we looked at this idea of Jesus. And I said to you that everything that Jesus accomplished in his ministry on earth, he accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, not his divinity. Now, why this is important is because... When we look at Jesus, we can say to ourselves, well, he's God. So, of course, he can heal. Of course, he can do all these things. But the part you're missing, and when you look at it that way, is you forget that Jesus himself said, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. That moment he walks into the synagogue and reads the scroll of Isaiah, it, the prophets themselves said that the Messiah, the Moshiach, this individual who would come, the word Messiah means anointed one. That this person who was going to come to speak for God would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' ministry started when he was baptized and the Spirit of God came upon him. Entire li- uh, the entire ministry of Jesus was soaked and saturated by the Holy Spirit. Although I want to say one thing real quick though. Even though we see the, the life and the, mir- and, and the work of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit... He did retain some of his divinity. And the reason I say that is because um, if you look at scriptures, a couple of times he will look at somebody and he will say, I forgive you of your sins. This is only a God moment. Only God can forgive. No human being can forgive. Only God can forgive. So in that moment, Jesus is retaining his divine right to forgive this person that needs forgiveness. So we talk about the God man, right? Jesus was fully God and fully man. We don't understand how that works. We don't understand what that quite looks like. But it's, it's, it, it, is, it is easier to say that the divine part of Jesus, he only used a few times in his ministry. And the rest of it was more by the supernatural pieces uh, of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we looked at last week. And this morning, we want to continue on. And this morning, I want to look at one of the most controversial passages, perhaps in the entire Bible. Um, and a passage of scripture that terrified me. Before we do that, I want to talk about a word that is being used a lot in our culture today. And the word is privilege. When people talk about privilege today, we are asking ourselves, what is it about this culture? What about our society? What about this world that we live in that has perhaps elevated some people and perhaps pushed other people down? And the idea of privilege has been a conversation that's happened. Now, I will say this. I don't know if people are using it or talking about it in a different way, but it is a conversation that's happening. And I think it's an important one. When we talk about the word privilege, we can define it this way. A special right, advantage, or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group of people. This would be a, a, a high view word of this word privilege. But in our culture today, what we're really saying when we talk about privilege is we're saying some people in this world have been given a step up where perhaps others haven't. 
And so how do we find a way of balancing this world so that all may have that opportunity? And that's actually a really great conversation. Well, part of me has been wondering about this part of the word uh, privilege and asking yourselves about this concept of Christian privilege. Now, what I mean by that is that uh, in, our, in Western Christianity today, there is this idea of looking at, at faith and of culture of saying, um, oh, it has, church has to be this way. Or church has to be that way. Or this is the right way to do it. This is the wrong way to do it. Or, or, or we, we've placed ourselves in a way that's been, um, we kind of over, look over church or our faith. We say, no, 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 this is it. And right now, through social media and through uh, different um, avenues, we are seeing a, a clash of, of, of faith and of Christianity. No, I'm this type of a Christian. No, I'm that type of Christian. And what it already comes down to is that we are elevating ourselves and say, no, 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 I bear judgment over faith. And that's actually kind of an odd conversation because privilege is the exact opposite, I would say, of what Jesus intended. See, Jesus says, you know, take up your cross. Jesus says, serve other people. See, other people is better than you. And so this idea of privilege has been kind of one that we've talked about in culture, but I think in Christianity, we need to talk about it as well too. And the reason we need to talk about it is because this is going to lead us into what Jesus says to a group of people, which is is probably, as a Christ follower, the most terrifying passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at a few different passages, but we're going to be basically looking at three different instances. Now, the great thing about the Gospels are, is that when one Gospel tells us a story about Christ or a teaching, we go, okay, that's important. When two Gospels tell us that, we go, oh, okay, this is, this is for emphasis. Well, when three of the four Gospels tell us something, we go, Okay, this is really important. Now remember, right? One of the Gospels at the very end of it says, the things that Jesus did and said, you would need every book in the world to kind of record it all. So the reason they say that is because whatever they wrote down, they thought this was going to be important for the next generation of Christians to know. And the reason why that's important is whatever we read in the Gospels is given to us so that we can understand this Jesus person that they saw through eyewitness accounts. Now, remember, as I told you, right, all four Gospels are four different perspectives of Jesus, right? Matthew is to the Jews. That's why he starts off with the genealogy. Mark is Peter's Gospel. Uh, Mark was a disciple of Peter. Peter recites it to Mark. Mark got the credit. Good for Mark. But it's actually Peter's gospel, right? Luke's gospel was, was, was not even an eyewitness account. It was an investigative reporter. Remember how Luke starts off? Dear Theophilus, it seemed good to me that I would go out and I would discover who Jesus was and all he taught. And John's gospel is a gospel of, of depth, right? Whoever John was, he was the philosopher of the group. So John doesn't start off his gospel uh, by even talking about uh, the Christmas story. He starts off talking about the logos. And the reason why that's so important is because the Greeks understood this, this, this idea of logos. Now, the reason I'm saying that to you is the passage of scripture we're going to look at is talked about in three of the four gospels, which is really important. Jesus says something, and he uses a phrase that has haunted me for many, many years as a Christian. Now, I grew up with a very strict uh, understanding of, of Christianity. As a matter of fact, I remember our youth pastor one day saying this. If Jesus were, was to return, and you were in a movie theater watching a movie, you wouldn't go back with him. I remember him saying that, and it terrified me because part of me was like, What? What, like if Jesus returned and I was in the movie theater, I would, be, I would not go back with Jesus? And I thought it'd be true because he's a pastor. Why would he lie to me? 
And, um, and so I thought, okay. And so what he was basically saying is there's behavior you can do, there's things you can do that would dismiss you from God. And of course, as a youth, I was like terrified. And then there's this passage of scripture that's repeated three times where Jesus says this. So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. This is the idea of the unforgivable sin. And now why this is important is because Jesus talks about it, but not only does he talk about it, three of the four gospel writers think it's so important that they are going to include this story, this account for future Christians. Now, I as a, as, as, as a rambunctious youth, uh, a rambunctious young, okay, I've been rambunctious my entire life, pretty much, right? But when I grew up as a youth, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, there is something that I can do that is going to make God not forgive me and it's going to dismiss me from his presence for the rest of eternity? And then, of course, you turn inwards going, well, what is it? What, is, what does blasphemy against the Holy Spirit mean? To Have I done it? Did, did I do it without not knowing it? Am I going to stand before God and say, listen, you had a great life. It's a good run. But you blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. So I'm sorry. We have lovely gifts for you behind door B there. Don't mind the flames. Um, right? Like, like, that's what I thought. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, how do I know what this is? And so what is interesting about this account is, is the story starts off very interesting. So in Matthew's gospel, he starts off the story by telling it this way. A man who was both blind and uh, unable to speak, and also was demon-possessed, was brought before Jesus. Now, Remember this, okay? You're in the crowd there, and you're seeing this, and this man is broad, and he can't see anything. He's like, he can't speak, right? Because whatever is gripped him has gripped him in such a way that he cannot speak. He cannot see. And the Bible tells us he's also demon-possessed, which means that he is convulsing. He's screeching. He, the behavior that we would say within this. Now, let's stop for a second here. Western Christianity, we get very uncomfortable with demon possession. We get very uncomfortable with the supernatural realm. And I'd say to you, as I have said to you, that you cannot read the Bible without acknowledging first and foremost that the writers, these people believe this to be true. You can deny it. You can doubt it. You can, you can be cynical about it. But you first must let the Bible say what it says. And the Bible says a demon-possessed man who could neither see nor speak was brought before Jesus. And so Jesus does what Jesus does best. By the power of the Spirit, he heals him. Eyes are open, he can speak, and the demon is cast out, whatever that would be. And most often than not, it was a shriek. Right? It was like, ah! And then the demon says, and the man sits there quietly. Now, the Pharisees are sitting there going, well, of course he can cast out demons. He's doing it by the power of Satan. So the reason why this is important is because the conversation isn't about the Holy Spirit. It's not even about blasphemy. It's about the Pharisees saying to Jesus, what you have done, you've done by the power of the enemy. Now, that's where the context of the story begins. Now, in some commentators, they say this. This conversation is only meant to be with the Pharisees. But the problem is, is because we have three of the four gospel accounts talking about it, we have three different perspectives of the story. In Matthew 12, it says, but when the Pharisee heard this, so we know that the Pharisees are there and Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. But we also see in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered. So whatever Jesus is saying, he's not bringing them over and whispering to them. He's speaking to them. And this, this large group of people are hearing what he's saying. So in this group of people, there are three people represented. The first is a religious leader, right? The Pharisee. The second is the Jewish person who is a religious follower, 
But the third is this crowd who are curious but not committed. Wherever Jesus went, he had the crowd around. There's always crowds of people around him. But they were curious. They were not committed to Jesus. They weren't committed to the kingdom of heaven or this Messiah. They were just like, what's he going to do today? Right? What's he going to do? Now, the reason this is important is because what this lays out for us is it says to us, okay, this is for everybody to know. It wasn't singled out for a, sing, uh, for a particular type of person or a particular type of, uh, of, of person within the crowd. This is for everybody to hear. Now, look what Jesus says in Mark's gospel. Mark says this in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 29. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, you have to say that you have to look at that. And whatever you think this means, you have to realize there are deep implications to what Jesus is saying. This is the only time in scripture where Jesus says there is something that cannot be forgiven. Now, what does blasphemy mean, right? So when we talk about blasphemy, it's not necessarily a word that we use in common usage today. And not only is it not a word that we use in common usage, what did it mean to the people that were listening to it back then? Well, a simple definition of blasphemy is this. To blaspheme is to insult the character of God or the truth of Christian faith or sacred things. It is to deliberately offend God and rob him of his glory. Now, what's interesting about this word blasphemy is it's used throughout the New Testament except for one book. A guy by the name of Bernard Franklin says it this way. The word blasphemy in its various forms as verb, noun, and adjective appears some. 59 times in the New Testament. It has a variety of renderings, such as blasphemy, reviled, railed, even spoke of, uh, evil spoken of, to speak evil of, etc. But let's just hop down to the bottom there where it says this, where I've highlighted the part there. All New Testament writers, except the author of Hebrews, uses the word. This is kind of important here. Because every one of the single uh, gospels, the book of Acts, and all the letters use this word. So whatever blaspheme means, whatever blasphemy is, it is something that the, the New Testament writers spoke of quite often. And that's important because to say, it, to look at Jesus' account, you go, well, blasphemy is more of an Old Testament thing. As a matter of fact, I would say to you when I first approached this topic, um, that's kind of what I thought. I thought blaspheming, blaspheming is more of this, uh, of this uh, um Jewish uh, concept that took place within the temple, within, uh, within the Torah. But actually, the New Testament writers talk about it a lot. And what's interesting about blaspheming is a particular person in the Bible refers to themselves as a blasphemer. And that would be the person named Paul. And Paul, writing to 1 Timothy 1.13, look what he says of himself. Even though I was once a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. So the blasphemy means to speak, act, live against God. But look what Paul, Paul says. I was a blasphemer. I was a blasphemer. So whatever blasphemy is... Paul himself, right, again, one of the guys who wrote most of the New Testament, one of the greatest uh, thinkers and evangelists in the New Testament, says of himself, I blasphemed. I was a blasphemer. But look what he says, though. But I was shown mercy. So whatever blasphemy, blasphemy is by itself, by itself, forgiveness is available to that. 
So that's important because whatever we look at with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is this concept of blasphemy by itself, we can be forgiven of it because Paul says, I was forgiven of it. I was this person, but I was forgiven of it. Remember, Paul was on, his, on, on the road to being a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, as he, as he describes himself. He was a religious leader. He was taught by Gamaliel, one of the foremost Christian um, uh, Jewish thinkers of the day. But he says, I was a blasphemer, but I was shown mercy. So blaspheme means to act and live against what, what God wants. But now, what does against the Spirit mean? It may surprise you to note that in the Old and the New Testament, the Bible looks, uh, the Bible, but also uh, God, looks down or looks very badly against people who work against the Spirit. Now, let me give you a few examples. Uh, alert here, there'll be lots of passages of Scripture on the screen because they're going to teach us something really important here, right? The Holy Spirit isn't just simply a book of Acts concept. It is used and is spoken of in the Old Testament. So look at what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the uh, day of redemption. Don't grieve him. Don't work against him. Um, look at Isaiah chapter 63. I think this is really interesting. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. In other words, they resisted the Holy Spirit so much that he said, fine, you want to fight me? Fight me properly. And he turned around and became their enemy. Look look at 1 Corinthians 2. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Remember, the book of Corinthians, as I've mentioned before, it's kind of a crazy book. It's kind of a crazy group of people. They love Jesus. They love the spirit, but they've got no boundaries, right? Remember, in this book, Paul says, hey, when you have a communion, try not to, have, try not to get drunk and have sex with one another, right? This is, the, this is the church Paul's talking to. At the very beginning, of it, he says, listen, unless you have the Holy Spirit, you are not going to understand what God wants for you. This is kind of important. Look at uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. We've talked about this before. But the flesh part of us, comfort, pleasure, status, all these things, may actually be kind of the opposite of what the spirit wants for us. And finally, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty has sent by his spirit. So blasphemy coupled with um, an action against the spirit is the hint of what the unforgivable sin is. Now, I have to kind of go into the Greek language just for a second here because I have to show you what's happening here. Because when you read this, you say to yourself, how can something as, as if, if Paul was a blasphemer and he was forgiven and other people in the church were blasphemers and they were forgiven, what is it with coupled by the spirit that makes it unforgivable? Well, when you look at the original language of the Greek, there's, um, there's a kind of a hint for us. So the Greek language, when we learned Greek, I told you already about this, but the Greek language is a very complex language. It's very mathematical in many ways. Now, what's interesting is, is that the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, it was used for other documents as well too, like Homer's Iliad. For example, when uh, in second semester, we had to take a passage from Homer's Iliad and translate it because the same rules we learned to apply for the New Testament could also be applied to that. Now, the reason that's important is because sometimes people go, well, how do you know the translation's correct? Because it goes across not just biblical writings, but extra biblical writings as well too. In the Greek language, there's different tenses. Sometimes language could be repetition. 
So now look at this here. Note the specificity. It's a new mouth I'm working on. It doesn't have to stick with me. Note the specificity of Mark's description of these critics' actions. The inspired writer describes their conduct in this way. Because they said, now the word he uses, they say, is elegon, which is in the imperfect tense. Now I'm explaining to you why this is important. He has an unclean spirit. The tense of the verb is extremely important. It denotes a sustained activity. So when we look at language, we say to ourselves, it is done, it is in a moment, it is finite. But in the Greek language, there is a tense that means repetition. It's not just a singular act, it is a posture. And when they say to to Jesus, look what he's doing, they use the imperfect tense. The reason that's important is because Jesus uses the imperfect tense back to them. And he says, when he uses this, or, uh, the concept of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's in the imperfect tense, which is not a momentary action. It is by repetition. Repetition by repetition. These men were not simply making an ignorant mistake. They were deliberate, dug-in enemies of truth. They would, they would hang on to, that, uh, on to their sinful disposition till the end. And that rebellion would follow them into eternity, hence the eternal sin. How do we know this? How do we know what's in their heart? What's interesting, because in Matthew, remember Matthew starts off with Jesus healing a demoniac, somebody who's demon-possessed, who cannot see, who cannot speak, right? That is a remarkable sign. If I did that, I'd write a book, I'd be wearing a white suit, and I would have, I'd be preaching like huge, huge platforms, right? Like that's, that's how big this thing would have been, right? That one act, I would have, I would have been on the speaking circuit, right? So he does this. Now look at this here. Look at what it is they go on earlier on, later on. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What, 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 what? The, the demon-possessed guy, the blind guy, the guy that couldn't speak, that wasn't enough? The reason that this is important, it shows their heart, it doesn't matter what Jesus will do. It doesn't matter what Jesus will say. It doesn't matter what he will teach. It doesn't matter what miracle. See, this is what I think is so funny about Christians. We, we think we want to see the miraculous and that'll prove God's existence. And when God does it, we're like, well... That was pretty okay. But you got to do that again. I don't know, God. That, that seemed okay, but really? What did the enemy say in the garden? Did God really say? Did God really do? Right? He sows doubt. And so Jesus just did this. He just taught this. And then they say to him, well, we need a sign. And then maybe we'll believe you. Right? Like, like Jesus throughout his entire ministry did the most miraculous thing, did the most incredible miracles ever recorded. Did it make people believe? Did it make people believe? One of these things would have been good enough for me. The bread, the, the, the fish, I'm there. Free food, okay. All right, I'll follow this guy. We're heading to Olive Garden next, Jesus, because I, I, I got some pasta I want you to kind of go out here. There, You know, like, like any one of Jesus' miracles, a few of them put together, that's enough for belief. But for these people, it didn't matter what Jesus said. It didn't matter what Jesus did. They would not believe him. And this is what Jesus is trying to talk about here. When he talks about the unpardonable sin, what it really is, the unpardonable process of sin. Now, when we talk about forgiveness, there are two tensions in the Bible and the one tension we know about. So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, what does John say, right? Now, John is the last surviving apostle. By the time John writes this letter, Peter, Paul, James, they're all been murdered. They're all dead. 
John is probably one of the last surviving apostles by the time he's writing this letter. That's why when John writes his letter, it's not written to a particular church, i.e. Corinth, Ephesus. It's just written to the church at large. And one of the reasons why John writes his letter, John is elderly when he writes this letter. The language of, of what he uses, like he talks about my children, right? He uses that phrase a lot because he's elderly now, whatever that would mean in that context. Now, John is trying to help this next generation of Christians to understand, I saw Jesus. I touched Jesus. You are taught about Jesus, but I am one of the final eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And John wants to convey something to them. He says, listen, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of some unrighteousness, the easy unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Now, the reason that's important is because John is saying something very important to the church. He's saying, listen, you're going to be broken. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. But as long as you come back to God and you say sincerely and authentically, Jesus, please forgive me, you will be forgiven. But there's also another tension in the Bible, and the writer of Hebrews says it this. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. How do we reconcile these two concepts? And what's interesting is the second concept of the writer of Hebrews, you say to yourself, that's an anomaly. That actually is closer to Jesus' teaching than anything else. Why do you think Jesus keeps talking about using metaphors of, of like plants and of, of wheat and of, of, of things? What does he say about the weeds? Weeds will be pulled up. What does he say about the vine? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And when my father prunes, he'll prune those things which aren't being fruitful. This concept of judgment towards those who are not being transformed and changed is closer to Jesus' teaching that we are... We, that we are more comfortable than acknowledging. And that's important because this is what Jesus is trying to tell his followers. It is not enough that you decide to follow me. It is not enough that you call yourself a Christian. That's not enough. And that's what this Holy Spirit series has been about. It's not enough to check off a box or to say I said this magic prayer when I was a teenager or I did this or I attended this. It's not even enough that you're here this morning and you're like, oh, That's not enough, right? That is not enough. Why? Because that's not what Jesus died on the cross for. It was a transformation that he was looking for. Remember, this entire series started off with this idea. How can people who call themselves Christians not look much like Jesus? That's where this series has started off with. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes into it. N.T. Wright, when he is talking about this passage, says this. Jesus is warning against looking at the work of the Spirit and declaring that it must be the devil's doing. If you do that, it's not just that you won't be forgiven, you can't be, because you have just cut off the very channel along which forgiveness would come. Once you declare that the only remaining ball of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. If I put you on a desert island and I gave you a ball of water and you don't trust me much, you're not going to drink from it. I'll die a slow death or I'll die immediately. N.T. Wright's using that image of saying, listen, whatever the unforgivable sin is, whatever this posture that Jesus is talking about, it's not an act. It's not a momentary thing that you do. It is a posture of your heart, of your stance towards God. That will separate you from what God wants. And this is the danger he's trying to tell his followers and the crowd and anyone else. 
If you refuse to move, if you refuse to transform, if you refuse what the Spirit is trying to do in you, well, then you have just set yourself in a, in a position of, of, um, of a very dangerous spiritual position. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is any sin that a person clings to by continually resisting the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind that there is not one specific sin that is unforgivable, such as lying, stealing, or murder, but rather a perpetual hardening of the heart and willfully sinning against God and man. The language that Jesus uses, the imperfect tense, is continual. It's continual, continual. And the Holy Spirit is given to us to continually transform us. But if we say to the Holy Spirit, no, I I can't give you this area of my life. What's interesting is, is it's never one area of our life that we hold back from God. Because whatever area we hold back from God, it multiplies. Because it's a posture. Lord, I I can't give you that area. I, I don't want to give you that area. Frankly, I don't know. Well, then it, it spills over and it spills over and it spills over to the point where you have now said to God, no, Lord, I don't, I don't want anything for you. So what does a process of unforgivable look like? Resistance becomes stagnation. Stagnation becomes toxic and toxic becomes death. You resist the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is saying to you, this area, this thing, this person, this relationship, this love of whatever it would be, It is holding you back from everything. And it's not about perfection. Now, I want to be clear. I actually had a conversation with somebody at Wellesley this morning. I was over there teaching. And this woman said to me, like, like, what if we give something up to God, but we still fall? We still fail. That's forgiveness. You go back to God saying, Lord, forgive me. Right? Forgive me. I'm going to try again. It's the posture of saying, no, no, Lord, you can't have that area. You can't have that. I'm not giving it to you. This person, this relationship, this habit, this, this, this thing in my life, the status, the, the business, like this is more important to me than you. And in that moment, you are saying to God, God, I, I, don't want, I don't want what you have for me. And this is the posture that the Western church has taken towards God, I believe. Now, watch this. Resistance is fruitless. Remember I said to you? What are we looking for within Christianity? What are we, we don't, we don't judge other Christians. You can't judge a person's spiritual life because you don't know. But the Bible does say, look at the fruit. Where are the fruit? You be a mango. I resemble more of a watermelon, right? Like whatever it would be, like where is the fruit? And if you are fruitless, that is a first indicator that you are resisting the Holy Spirit. Okay, let me repeat that. If you are fruitless, this is the first indicator, this is the first warning sign that you are resisting the Holy Spirit. And in that resistance comes stagnation. And stagnant water is water that stands itself and the minerals and, and, and the bacteria in the water become to grow. And that growth becomes death. And that water becomes lethal. And that is the spiritual stance of people within the church today. It becomes fruitless, becomes stubborn, and then it becomes spiritual death. This is the posture of the unforgivable sin. And I say to you, like I, I confess to you, and I said this to the uh, Wellesley this morning, I've never taught on this passage of scripture before because I'm terrified of it. 
I've never taught on this before. I've been reading book after book after commentary after article for weeks before I even wanted to teach on this because I was terrified of it because I looked at it in the Bible and I would say what most pastors would say, most wise pastors, well, I, I'm just going to, well, you know, we're going to skip over this one because I, I don't know how to deal with it. But the problem is, if it's mentioned three times, it's something important is there. There is a truth that, the, that we need to embrace. Remember, at UCC, we talk about this. We don't teach the comfortable stuff. We teach the uncomfortable stuff too. We don't say, no, I don't like this part. Therefore, I'm not going to talk about it. It's in the Bible. Therefore, we have to wrestle with it, whatever it means. And in my prayer times, in my, in my fasting, in my prayer times, the Spirit led me to this passage of Scripture and told me to preach on it. And I remember kind of going, ah, nah, I, no, I, I know. I, I've never taught on this passage of Scripture. I've never taught on this concept before because I confess to you, I don't, I don't know. But when I started digging into it and I started kind of breaking it down and seeing different uh, commentators, different historians talk about it, I realized something. This passage is, is even more important today, not because of the sin itself, which I was taught, which was wrong, but it's the process of the heart. And that process of the heart, the resistance of the spirit, that is the part that Jesus, that is what the spirit really wanted me to speak on this morning. And it's not about what you do. Like, the great thing about, about God is that when we come to him for forgiveness, we receive it. And again, we look at Paul the Apostle. He was a blasphemer. He was violent. He killed other Christians. I might get one out of three. I might even get two out of three, but I'm not going to go three for three for Paul. But this guy received God's forgiveness and was used in the kingdom of heaven. So whatever blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, it is not a singular act but it is a repetition of resistance to the Holy Spirit for transformation. And there's a kingdom principle in this because three times when Jesus talks about it, this is what he says. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. But whoever disowned me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. What happens when we resist the Holy Spirit? We are separated from Jesus. And when we are separated from Jesus, we are separated from salvation. And this is the principle that Jesus is trying to teach. He's trying to say to people, listen, whatever you think about the Holy Spirit, however you think of God giving us the Spirit, if you resist it long enough, hard enough, if you, if you continually push yourself against it, you will be separated from me. You will be, uh, you will be set aside from me. And that is what Jesus is trying to say. And when he comes down to this, Heaven says there is a better way. Hell says you're fine. Heaven says, God says, I love you so much, I refuse to leave you the way you are. That I have called you to something greater, something more profound, something transformative, something painful, something with purpose. The enemy says, no, no, you're good. You're good. Just don't break a sweat. This is the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is a posture of any believer to say, you know what, God? This far I'll go, but no further. This much of you I'll have, but nothing else. And in that posture, in that moment, we are saying to God, I'm now, I don't want to go outside of my comfort zone. I don't want to go outside of that area of my life that I know I should give to you, but I I, I don't really want to. C.S. Lewis, when he's trying to describe hell, not a sermon on hell, but you get the idea. When he's trying to describe hell, he says it this way. 
Um, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you, uh, you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. See, we think of we stand before God and God looks at us and goes, well, you did go to church on Sunday, so that's good. But, you know, during the week, you live like this, so that's bad. You did sing three out of the five songs, so that's good. But the two out of the five you complained about, so that's bad. Mm, I don't know. Peter, what do you think? This one? Right? Like, we think that we stand before God and God's making the decision of what's going to, where we spend our eternity. C.S. Lewis is saying something really important here. He's saying, listen, when you stand before God, the decision of where you want to live has already been made. And God just acknowledges that decision right there, right then. Billy Graham passed away this week. And uh, of course, lots of great articles, lots of great things about it. But whatever you think about Billy Graham and and his ministry, and I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I didn't even know he was sick. But uh, I've never been to a Billy Graham crusade. I I don't ever recall uh, being under his ministry, but I will say this, this man had integrity. He was respected, but he never wavered in his belief. Never wavered in his belief. And he believed that salvation, this, this gift that God has given to humanity, this is what was worth it. And all his energy was, was focused onto that. Because he understood something, which I think C.S. Lewis understood, which Jesus was warning against. You must come before God and you must say, Lord, your way, not my way. And as soon as you say, my way, not yours, you are cutting yourself off from grace and forgiveness. And you, there's a hardening of your heart. The prophet Ezekiel, and I'll close with this, and we're going to be having communion here. So I'm going to give a heads up to the uh, people who are getting ready for communion. The prophet Ezekiel is prophesying thousands of years before the Holy Spirit comes. And Ezekiel says this. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. Now, pause here for a second. Ezekiel is talking to Israel. We know this. But there's a, there is a double meaning to this. In other words, this is for other believers as well too. In the context of the passage, in the context of what Ezekiel is going to say, you'll see it. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from your, all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from, your heart, from, from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There's, there's, there, there's a concept he says there. I'm going to get rid of your heart of stone. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. The hardening of your heart is the unforgivable sin. It's when you stand before God time after time and you refuse. You just refuse. No, no. And you are stuck in your faith, whatever level it would be. It doesn't matter if you came a Christ follower a week ago or 50 years ago. If there has not been any growth, if there has not been any development to who and what you are, I want to, I want to warn you this morning. The Spirit of God wants to warn you that you might be resisting the Holy Spirit. And in that resistance, you have chosen a path that is separate from God. And this entire series is about saying to you, saying to myself, 
whatever it is God has for us, there is more. There is more. You cannot get to the end of God. You cannot reach the limits of whatever God has for you. And all he wants for each of us is to open ourselves to the Holy Spirit, saying, what is it in my life? How, how, how do I need to be changed and transformed? He will use pain, suffering, pleasure, joy. He'll use all those things to transform us into Jesus' image. When Jesus says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he's not saying this an act or a thing we can say, but he's saying it is a posture of your spirit of resisting God. And in that posture, you will cut yourself off from God and you will spend an eternity separated by God, from God. And that was his warning. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I'm going to invite the musicians to come back up. They're going to lead us in a song. I think it's so apt that uh, we're celebrating communion and we've just talked about this topic. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, just, I just, as always, I just want to give you an opportunity to think, to meditate, to ponder. Have you, are you resisting the Holy Spirit in your life? Is there an area of your life, is there a relationship, is there something that you are holding so tightly to yourself that you refuse to give it to God? God is trying to tell every one of us, he has more. He has more for us. He has more he wants to do in your life. He has more that he wants to release in your life. There's more transformation that needs to take place. But if we set ourselves against God, against the power of God, against the spirit of God working in us, then we have placed ourselves on very dangerous ground. 